You may not know that my daughter is a hawk. A hawk. So were her brothers. Not literally, of course. That would be really strange. But uh, it is what they designate her because of our local high school. Chose that as a mascot when they started the school back in 1978. And I guess that makes sense because living here, having lived in a few places in my adult life, I've seen more hawks, literal hawks, in this area than anywhere else. I'll be driving down the road and I'll look up at the street light and perch there majestically on the street light. There's this really big hawk. I see that, you know, I don't know, once a month probably. And more impressive than that, and I probably see it more often than that, I will see them unfurl their big wings and just start circling around and cruising around and, and, and swooping into the canyons and and I've even seen them dive after snakes and pick them up. And they say that they will dive these hawks up to 150 miles per hour. I mean, that's fast. They go right down, I mean, two, three inches from the ground, snag their prey, and off they fly. And I think, man, that's impressive. When I saw a hawk the other day, I thought to myself, you know, people have been watching birds fly since Adam and Eve. And I'm sure every generation, they've all said what you've said and I've said and has been, that is cool. I would like to do that. That would be neat. And when you think about history, you've had smart brains in every generation trying to figure out how to do that. And they have. They've tried hard. And it wasn't until 1903 when the Wright brothers launched their first plane that we actually got human flight off the ground, pardon the pun. And by 1970, we were rolling out Boeing 747s. Think about it. From Kitty Hawk in Ohio to Boeings being produced and people being, you know, catapulted across the sky, across the country at 35,000 feet at six, 700 miles an hour. That is an amazing, amazing thing. And it all comes down to the wing, right? We figured out the wing. After all these years, we finally figured this out. Flat bottom, curved top. Right, get this thing moving, thrust, of course. You get this wind sweeping over the top, pushing down. You'll create lift. And all of this defies gravity and the seemingly impossible happens just by figuring out the design of the wing. I mean, that changed everything. It was revolutionary. So simple, but so revolutionary. I'm going to preach this morning on a topic that is really simple. As a matter of fact, you might have already seen it in the bulletin, and you think, man, this is like Sunday school stuff. You're going to talk to us about something I've learned from the time I went to school. I don't even remember the first time I learned about this topic. It is so simple. And if you're tempted to yawn your way through this sermon, I just want to tell you, don't. It may be simple, but it changes everything. The seemingly impossible becomes possible with this, and though I think you've heard it all before, and you may say, I know all of this. Don't underestimate the power of what we're going to talk about this in morning. Jesus talked about it in Mark 11, and he said, you know, it's the thing that can take a mountain with these cubic tons of dirt and rock and granite and pick it up and throw it into the sea. And in verse 14, here are the three words, asking in prayer. And of course, God isn't in the business of trying to move dirt around by you praying. That's not the, that's not the point. The point is, what is impossible is made possible when God's people pray, praying about the right things to the right person. And God says, I'll do the impossible. Well, the impossible isn't doing magic tricks for us, and it's not even putting Band-Aids on temporal problems. And though we've had these Band-Aids on temporal problems that have suspended natural law, and we've had plenty of miracles that take place, I say plenty, really not that many. 
right? Less than 100 designated miracles in the Bible that were actually the suspension of natural law. But those times that we've had them, just realize they're a sign pointing to something much bigger and something much more important. Because to make blind eyes see, if you're talking about literal eyes seeing, they're just going to stop seeing anyway because in this fallen world, they're all destined to die. But God's worried about what happens after you die. And the Bible says there's a whole new life awaiting everyone and you're going to spend it in one of two places. And where you deserve to spend it is incurring the penalty, the just penalty for your sins. But the Bible says I can do the impossible. I can take guilty people whose sins are guilty. I mean, their, their sins are, are, are staining their lives like crimson, like blood, like, like wine on a, on a white linen, and I can make it white as snow. I can do that. I can do the impossible. And you and I know as we look at Acts chapter 1 that we are commissioned like the early church to take this message of the gospel to our Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. That's our job. And our job is impossible. We're trying to take people that are by nature children of God's just wrath and to have their lives completely changed. To have them, instead of being alienated from God, being children of God. Instead of being worthy and, and, and qualified for his judgment, to be worthy and qualified for his blessing and eternal life. I mean, that's big. That's important. A lot of Christianity is trying to shift the emphasis on the here and now. Trust me, the here and now is going away. What you see is temporal. What you don't see is eternal. And that's what matters the most. And God wants you and I to get people ready for that. And what it takes is the gospel. And in Acts chapter 1, we've been studying in our new study, our verse-by-verse study through Acts, we've been learning what it's like to see ourselves in the sandals of that first generation of Christians in the church and say, we've got to get serious about what that passage tells us to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And the Bible says, if you get serious about prayer, which is what we see by a pattern in Scripture and a command in Scripture... God can start to do the impossible. God's about to turn the world upside down with 120 people in Acts chapter 1. Things are going to seismically shift. A revolution is going to take place. And it all comes down to men and women praying. I know you know about prayer. I know you've heard about prayer. I know you probably have a prayer life. I'm here today to get that prayer life a little bit more focused on what's eternally important and a lot more habitual in your daily life, a lot more consistent in your daily life. I'd like you to do what they're doing in this passage. I'd like you to be devoted to your prayer life, particularly the kind of prayers that make a difference for eternity because you've got your sights set on people being saved. I challenged you two weeks ago, and I guess by way of introduction, we've got to go back and deal with that in our minds because I've tried to be very specific about you getting four people in view that you think need the gospel. You can tell they don't have a real genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we took those four words in Acts chapter 1, the Jerusalem, the Judea, the Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I said, please try and identify someone. And I just made some simple correspondence, right? Jerusalem was the place where they were going to be walking through the marketplace, at least for the next 10 days and thereafter, and people they rubbed shoulders with every day. And a lot of them were non-Christians. Most of them, obviously, were not right with God, and they needed the gospel. And I wanted you to identify someone that you rub shoulders with every single day. I mean, you see them almost every day, at least, and you say, they need the gospel, and I wanted you to put a name down on a card. Remember that two weeks ago? Then I said, how about your Judea? There's got to be someone here, you may not see every day, but there's a kinship with, because in Judea, that was the region around Jerusalem, and 
they all kind of felt they were on the same basic page as it related at least to their ethnicity. And I'm saying you've got a connection with some people in your life, maybe related by biology, and you say they're not saved, they need to be saved. And I wanted you to think of one person. It could be a connection through maybe, I don't know, your kid's uh, soccer team or, or Little League or, or something that you're involved in in your neighborhood. But you say, here is a group of people I have a, a kinship with, and it may be outside of work, but I want to care about their salvation. Your Jerusalem, your Judea, and then I really challenged you with a third one, didn't I? Samaria. I mean, Samaria, they wrote them off as theologically aberrant. I mean, these people did not have it right. These are people that if you wanted to talk about the Jewish Messiah, they had all the wrong ideas. And I said, there's someone in your life that you think, just no way. They may be a militant atheist. They may be an agnostic. They may be someone that you think, I don't know, they're just completely opposed to biblical Christianity. And I dared you to write down a Saul of Tarsus, someone you thought probably never get saved. But someone you know, someone you could connect with. And I said, think about that person and write that name down. You're Samaria. And then I said, ends of the earth. You got a fourth slot there? Just pick anyone. I said, it's like the free space on a bingo card. Just pick a name and put it down. Some non-Christian you know. And I, I challenge you to put four names down. Well, as they were just thinking through the progress of the gospel that was going to go out from Jerusalem, I want you to be thinking throughout this whole series about those four people in particular. Could you think of 40? Sure you could, but I want you to think of just at least four and identify them. And if you're late to the party here and you weren't here two weeks ago, or maybe you were and you didn't write them down, it'd be great for you even now just to jot down those four names and then to think through this passage in light of those four people. I want to show you how these people were devoted to prayer, and I don't have a record of what they were praying about, but I can guess. I can guess because the rest of the book unfolds their interest in the progress of the gospel. So let's read these three verses. Simple passage. Turn there and get your eyeballs on this text. I would love for you to follow along as I read verses 12, 13, and 14 of Acts chapter 1. I'll read it from the English Standard Version starting in verse 12. You can glance at the context and remind yourself that the ascension had taken place. Jesus left. We talked about that last week. And he was going to send his spirit, of course, that was going to change everything about their empowerment to do the work of progressing in terms of the gospel in this area from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Christ had left. In verse number 12, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. That's not Judas Iscariot, that's the other Judas. All of these with one accord were, here's the key, I just want to focus on this all morning. The key was they were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women, it wasn't just the 12, and Mary was there. I mean, noteworthy person was there, mother of Jesus, and his brothers, Jesus' half-brothers, right? His, his, his biological half-brothers. And by the way, you can just dip into verse 15. We'll deal with this next time. But in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. And so you want to know who was there? This parenthetical statement tells us the company of persons was in, was in all about 120 people. So we got 120 people. And we're about to see the world turned upside down. And what are they found doing in verse 14? Devoting themselves to prayer. This is not a casual acquaintance with prayer. This is not just you saying, well, I guess I'll pray for these four people this week. It's not about you just kind of praying for a couple weeks and then if nothing happens, well, then I, I give up. I've known people that have been praying for lost people in their lives for decades. And I've had some great stories. 
I remember baptizing a, a man in this church who had been prayed for, and I'd been praying with this wife for probably 22, 23 years. And she had been praying for 50 years. And he finally came to Christ. And, and it was a wonderful story. I've known people that have prayed for their family members and their neighbors and their friends for decades. And this is a persistent kind of praying. And I'm just saying, I want to pray for the progress that we need to have in seeing the gospel expanded. So let's start on verse 14. We'll kind of work our way backwards here. And just remember what I'm asking for and what I need to see happen among us is a devotion to prayer for the progress of the gospel. I put it this way. Number one, if you're taking notes, you need to pray for evangelistic progress. Let's pray that God will see people saved. That's what we need. Let's pray that those people, and again, I don't want to be too formulaic, but when it comes down to it, can you name four people that you say, I'm going to focus on these four people that need Christ. I know them. They know me. They've got my phone number. I've got theirs. I run into them all the time. I want to pray for these four people to be saved at least. You got 40, great. But let's start with four, and let's just then say what I need is to pray for progress and see these people saved. And why? Because it's impossible. It is like moving a mountain into the sea. The Bible says that we are dead in our transgressions and sins. I mean, Jesus showed us that he take biological eyes that didn't work and allow them to see, not so that we get excited about him healing blind people, because seeing eyeballs aren't going to last for very long. I said what God is trying to show us is that he can take spiritually blind eyes, 2 Corinthians 4, and he can have them open. Though the God of this world is blinding the minds of the unbelieving, he can open their eyes to see the light of the glory of the gospel in Christ. And that's what we're praying for. Because right now you got people on your list, they don't see it, they don't get it, they don't understand it. And the Bible says there's a spiritual war going on. When Paul was dragged in before King Agrippa, Herod's uh, great-grandson, still in the Herodian family, when he described his calling to be a witness, same word, to be a witness of Christ, he said, I was called to turn them, right, from blindness to sight, from darkness to light, to see them experience the forgiveness of sins. I mean, that's something you and I can't do. We have to beg God to have that happen. And so you and I need to pray. And that's the whole point, to remind ourselves and to ask God to do what only he can do because you and I can't do it. Any more than you going to the cemetery and trying to see the whole cemetery raised from the dead, you can't do it. And you can't walk through your neighborhood thinking of lost people and say, if I just give them the right words, they're going to be saved. Now, God wants you to give them the right words. He wants you to give them the right answers. But what it's going to need here is God getting involved in changing things. So I'd like to come up with a few things that you can pray for. And I want to be specific. Now, I know, and I already said, verse 14 doesn't tell us what they were praying for. I have to give an educated guess here as a student of the Bible that they had to be praying about the thing that God said was going to happen, the coming of the Spirit and the task at hand. So I want to look in the scripture at the things that I think are important for us to pray for when it comes to that combination of things. So take your Bibles and go to the fourth chapter of Acts, Acts chapter four, and let's, get, let's break this down to a few things that you can itemize that we need to be praying for. Here's the first thing. Drop down to the bottom of Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four, let's look at verse 31. One simple verse. Let's get our first point. What should I be praying for? Let's pray for this. It says, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So they're praying, here comes the Holy Spirit. It already happened in Acts chapter two, but here's another example of this happening, the combination of praying, God's Spirit involved, and what was the result? They continued to speak the word of God with, which has been the whole theme of that chapter, by the way, with what? Boldness. 
Number one, let's pray for this, for the Holy Spirit to give you boldness. Because if you don't have courage to talk about Christ, you're going to see anybody saved, let alone the four people on your list. You need courage. Jesus said there's going to be a price to pay. I was talking to someone just this morning about the fact that when they started talking to their coworkers about Christ, they were immediately excluded from things. And I'm telling you, that's just what Jesus said. You're going to be reviled. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be excluded. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. So I realized this. There's a price to pay. And a lot of us, naturally, we don't want to pay that price. I don't want to sit here and bring up Christ with the other soccer moms at this game. It's going to, they're going to end up thinking I'm weird. They're going to exclude me from their, their conversation. They're going, to, they're going to ridicule me. I, we're afraid of that. I don't want to be outed at, at work as the religious Jesus freak. Well, I know there's a price to pay, so what you need is to realize that the goal is for you to be faithful to your calling as an ambassador or a witness of Christ. And that means I need to have the courage to say, I got to do it, no matter what the price. I got to let the chips fall. I need to be a person who is courageous enough to speak up, and the Bible associates that with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit wants to embolden you. He wants to give you courage. You're never going to share the gospel unless you are emboldened and have the courage to do it. I'm sure you've all been to a lake where there's a place where you can jump off an elevated place, a rock or whatever, into the water. And the higher that rock, the scarier it is. And I understand that. Maybe it's Lake Powell, Lake Mead, I don't know, Canyon Lake. You're somewhere and there's water and you climb up there, hopefully in your younger days, because, uh, you know, the older you get, the dumber that whole thing seems. But you get up there on the cliff and you're looking over the cliff and you're thinking, okay, I got to jump. And the longer you think about it, the harder it is, right? You just need to jump. You need the courage to jump, because once you're jumping, you don't need courage anymore. Am I right? It's just all, it's it's on its own at that point. And you know what you need? The courage to jump into the conversation, because once you're in the conversation, you're in the conversation. And you're going to feel like that when it comes to evangelism, like I'm up to the edge. I need to say something. I need to say something. I need to bring this up. I need to talk about it. Well, once you do, you've, you've jumped. And you know what? Everything that we've talked about in the past Everything begins to start to work, right? God brings your training, your understanding of Scripture, your experience and your knowledge of the gospel, your testimony, right? Your answers that you have learned. Even if you're not some, some expert apologist, you start, all of that starts, to, it starts working then. But you need the courage to start. So let's pray for boldness. They prayed, Spirit got involved, they spoke with boldness. You and I need courage And that's going to set us and purpose us to the task. And even in those four people, let's think specifically. I need courage with all four of those people. All four, I need courage. God, give me courage. Let the Spirit grant me courage. Letter B, let's go to Colossians chapter 4. I want to go here because I couldn't help in studying our passage to see this word that's not all that common in verse 14 that precedes the word prayer. It's a strong word. I said it's not a casual association with prayer. It's a kind of a, a devotion. It's a, it's, a, it's a hard connection. Matter of fact, the word has to do with like, like grasping it and sticking with it. That same Greek word that's used in Acts chapter 1 verse 14 is the same word that's translated differently here in the passage, but it's the same Greek word. It's the same passage or the same context and the same subject, but it's, but it's a different passage. Look at verse 2. See the words, continue steadfastly. If you've got an ESV, that's how it's translated. Same word. Same word we find in verse 14 of our passage. Continue steadfastly. Be devoted to. Stick to it. It's like getting crazy glue in your hands and then putting a screwdriver in your hand. It's like you're stuck to it. It's, you're going you're gonna to have that. You're going to continue to hang on to it. Well, prayer needs to be that way. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Now, be alert. Be watchful. Be thankful. 
And then he says, listen, I want you to start praying that way for me. At the same time, pray also for us. He says that God, here's the first request we have here, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. That God may open to us a door for the word. That I can declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, which is an interesting juxtaposition of phrases here. What a paradox. Prisons, they like to shut the door, right? That's the whole point. Keep them in. He's praying for open doors while he's in prison. Open doors to get out? No, open doors so I can talk about the gospel, which he reports, by the way, in Philippians chapter 1, that it's meant great success for him. He was enclosed in prison, and yet he got a chance to speak to the entire Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard in Rome, and the gospel was going out to some very important influential people. And he saw that his imprisonment was the advancement of the gospel. We're praying for the advancement of the gospel in our world. I've kind of given you a directive to get a target, to get at least four people here. And I'm praying, first of all, that you be bold about that with those people. And secondly, I'm praying that you can have an open door to discuss these things. And so I put it this way. Holy Spirit needs to give you boldness, number one. Number two, or letter B, the Holy Spirit needs to give you an opportunity. You need an open door. That's the way Paul liked to talk about the opportunities, an encounter, a divinely orchestrated situation where it's just going to be the perfect entryway into the conversation, an open door into the topic. You need to pray for those. If you pray specifically and steadfastly, continuing in prayer, and you pray for you to have an open door, guess what's going to happen? You're going to start to see it. God's going to provide it. Book of Acts, by the way, is full of examples of God orchestrating people's circumstances so that this thing called the gospel starts to get talked about. We're going to look at this one in Acts chapter 6 down the road when we get there. But Philip is a great example of a guy who gets tossed right into a situation where he's going alongside of a chariot where this Ethiopian eunuch is. He's, a big, he's in the big retinue of, of, of Candace, this queen. And he comes upon him while he's reading the Bible of all things, Isaiah. And he says, hey, hey, you. What does this mean? Can you imagine that? I mean, just coming onto a situation where, or talk about teeing up a conversation for the gospel. Is the prophet talking about himself in this passage? Is he talking about someone else? Can you tell me about what this means? I mean, the circumstances of Philip being right there in Acts chapter 8, divine opportunity, a divine appointment, a divinely orchestrated encounter of an open door for the gospel. Pray for those. Pray that God would open the door for those. Letter A, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you boldness. Number two, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you an opportunity. Number three, let's look at the next verse in Colossians. Verse number four, that I may make it clear. Number, number three, or letter C, pray for clarity. Pray that you can be clear. You don't want to confuse people with your message of the gospel. You want to be crystal clear about it. And he breaks it down in three ways. If you want to kind of expand this, subpoints of the subpoints, he talks about walking in wisdom toward outsiders. Right? He says, I want to make it clear as well how I ought to speak. I ought to be clear. And I want to do the wise thing. I want to walk in wisdom toward outsiders making the best use of the time. That's the word in Greek that's used, that's translated time. It's not a bad way to translate it, but it's not about the clicks on the clock. It's about the opportunities, making the most of the, the open doors. So if God gives me an open door, I want to do the right thing. I want to have clarity about what to do. And then obviously, verse six, what to say. I want to have gracious speech. I want to have gentle, respectful speech but I want it to be good speech, speech that leaves them wanting more, seasoned with salt. And the third thing, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So I, I need wisdom and clarity about what to do, what to say, and how to answer. And that's the prayer that you ought to be having, that, that God's Spirit would allow you to do that. And a lot of it's going to be prep, right? Like the answer part. We ought to be ready to make 
a defense, give a defense to anyone who asks us for reason for the hope that's in us. We've been doing that on Thursday nights. And that's helpful, and there's prep involved in that. But when you're called to do it, you've jumped off the cliff of the conversation and you're in it, man, we certainly want God to grant us that, that clarity about what to say, clarity about what to do. Should I take them up on that offer? Should I go to that situation? Should I invite them over to my house? I need, I need clarity and wisdom about what to do, what to say, and how to answer. Pray for the Spirit to give you boldness. Pray for the Spirit to give you an opportunity. Pray for the Spirit to give you clarity. Number four, you don't need to turn there because I know you got this one memorized. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. And you're saying, I don't think I have that memorized. Well, I think you remember the passage at least. John 16, 7 through 11 is the passage when Jesus promises to send the Spirit of God. And when he sends the Spirit of God, he gives us the job description of the Spirit of God as it relates to non-Christians. And here's the word, that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. There's the word, the verb, convict. I want to pray for that. I want the Holy Spirit to convict them. What does that mean? That they feel that everything I'm saying applies to them. Three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And those are the hardest things for people to agree with. You want to talk about God is love. God wants you to have a great life. I agree with all that. You know what I can't agree with? That I'm a sinner. That's the first thing the Holy Spirit wants people to be convicted of. I mean, you're going to say all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's going to give you the L-shaped amen. I know someone like that, right? You're right, sinners, I know sinners. But when you ask them, are you going to heaven? They're gonna say what? Well, yeah, I'd probably go to heaven, why? Because I'm a sinner. No, because I'm a good person. The Spirit of God has to do that work to convict them of sin. And the only way you're gonna see sin is if you know the standard is so much higher than you of righteousness. Jesus said the reason the Spirit's gonna come and do that all over the world is because I'm leaving. When Jesus was there, trust me, you'd feel uncomfortable because he does everything righteous and everything holy and everything right. The Spirit's going to take that over now. When you share the gospel, what you're praying for is the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin. That's who they are. Righteousness, that's who God is. Holy, holy, holy. He's perfect, right? And then what's the difference between those two? Well, my feeling that I should be punished. I should be judged. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Holy Spirit is going to be sent into the world to do that. Guess when he does that? The Bible says he does it when we, his messengers, share a clear message of the gospel. I need boldness to do that. I need an opportunity to do that. I need clarity when I talk to do that. And then I need the Holy Spirit to convict them. Pray for the Holy Spirit's conviction in those conversations. And then lastly, you don't need to turn to this one because you know this one as well. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. You say, well, I know John 3.16. Well, if you know John 3.16, you remember that that's Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. And Jesus' whole thing with him before he gets to saying that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the whole point is he gave his son because they're sinners. But he said, if you get all that, what you need is a thing called new birth. You need to be born again. And in verse number three of that passage, he says, unless you're born again, you're never going to see the kingdom of God. You need, and the fancy word in theology for that, which is just a restatement of the word born again, is the word regeneration. You need to be made new. Number five, or letter, what is that? A, B, C, D, E, is you want the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. You want the Holy Spirit to regenerate them. Pray for the Holy Spirit's boldness. Pray for the Holy Spirit's opportunities. Pray for the Holy Spirit's clarity. Pray for the Holy Spirit's conviction. Pray for the Holy Spirit's regeneration. That's what we want. What he needs is what we all need, a change from the inside out. I want to drag someone to church and say, live like Christians, although that would make the world a little bit better. But it's, I want your heart to be made right. 
I need you to be born again. I need you to have a whole new start. I need God to take who you are and make you new. And he starts quoting the symbolism of the Old Testament in Ezekiel about water and the Spirit, which is not water baptism. It's the picture of being cleansed and washed and made pure, your sins forgiven, and the Spirit now directing you from this point forward, taking your heart of flesh and making it a taking your heart of stone, rather, and, and that's, that's dead to God, and making it a heart of flesh. It beats in sync with the will of God. I need you to be born again. I need you to be a new person. Now, I want you to think of the four people that you've targeted, and I hope that you have. If you need to catch up, you wrote the words, you wrote those names down, you want to think of those people. Now, I want you to think about these five things. I want you to be devoted to these. The passage doesn't say they're praying for those five things, but the rest of the New Testament would definitely encourage you to look at these kinds of things and pray for them, all related to the Spirit of God's work in this world. Pray for boldness, opportunity, clarity, conviction, and regeneration. They were devoted to prayer. And if you notice back in verse 14, it's printed on your worksheet. This was not just everyone going to their own corner of Jerusalem and praying by themselves. They were all with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together, together with the women and Mary and Jesus' uh, brothers. And before that, in verse 13, to work backwards, we have the key 11 of the 12 that were the apostles, the sent ones, the evangelists, the ones that were supposed to go out and preach the word and represent Christ in the world. They had entered, they went to the upper room, and they were staying there together, Peter, John, James, Philip, Andrew, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the other Judas, right, son of James, those were all there who'd all been called to be fishers of men. And then you had a bunch of other people up to 120, verse 15 says, and they were all praying together. I know there's a lot in the Bible about praying by yourself. And there is. Jesus talked about that. You pray by yourself. Jesus patterned his life, you know, oftentimes going out early before dawn and praying by himself to the Father. But it's interesting that we have also throughout the scripture a pattern, including Jesus, enlisting people to pray with him. And when it came to the battle of evangelism, I mean, it's a very common thing that God is calling people together to be praying. And certainly that's the pattern we see in this passage. We see people that have an evangelistic mindset praying together. And I could ask you to pray with people, but I'm asking you to pray with a certain kind of people. I could ask you to pray for, with Christians, and that's good, but I'd like you to pray with a certain kind of Christian. I'd like you to enlist people in your life to pray with you for the people you're trying to see saved who have an evangelistic heart. I put it this way. Number two, would you pray with evangelistic Christians who care about seeing the the lost reached, who would look at your list and say, I pray for those people to get saved. I want you to be the instrument of God's conversion in their lives. That would be great. Matter of fact, that's a certain kind of prayer team that you're pulling together that'll make all the difference. It really will. Because praying with other people changes everything about what you say you want to do. And by that, I mean, if you start sharing, let's just say you start with the four people on that card. If you got four people that you're praying for and you personally, quietly, privately, just pray for those people by yourself, well, that's great. And it's a good thing. But as soon as you share that with someone, if you were to say, I'm going to get a prayer team together and I'm going to have people praying for my relationship with those four people. You've just moved from a kind of a, a hope and a wish and a dream. I mean, that's what a private goal is, right? It's just a dream. And you've made it concrete now. You've kind of outed yourself that these are the people I want to see saved. Now, I'm challenging you. The Bible doesn't say this, but Pastor Mike is saying this. I'm saying, would you please identify four people that you want to see saved? Four non-Christians. And now I'm asking you, could you enlist some evangelistic Christians who care about the lost 
and say, would you pray with me for these people? Now, it'd be great if you had 120 people to pray for the lost people on your list. It'd be great if you had 12 people, or in this case, 11 people who really have an evangelistic heart to pray for them. But let me just make it easier for you. Let me give you a goal. And here's the goal. Could you enlist three people? Three people. And the reason I say this is so often you see Jesus enlisting three people. And who were they? Well, look at the list in verse 13. They're always listed first. Peter, John, and James. Sometimes it's Peter, James, and John. Or sometimes it's Peter, John, and James. But it's always those three guys. Those three guys are Jesus' tightest prayer partners. Here's a passage you can jot down. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now about eight days after these things, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. Did Jesus pray by himself? Plenty of times he prayed by himself. But a lot of times he took Peter, James, and John, and he said, you guys pray with me. When he went into the garden, it talks about the garden encounter in John 16. He's about to be betrayed in the garden, but he goes in there and he takes these guys to pray. And if you really read carefully the passage, he takes all 12 guys in there. But then he says, hey, Peter, James, and John, you come with me and you pray. And he takes them and he says, stay awake. Don't get tired. Resist temptation. Pray with me. Watch and pray with me. Be good if you had a Peter, James, and John that prays with you. And I'm just being specific in this series to have them pray with you about people in your life that you want to see saved. Three people to pray for four non-Christians And I've already given you a prayer list now to pray five things. If you just think about the potential, this very simple, and I hate it, I hate that it's formulaic, but man, if it's helpful, let it be helpful. If you had three evangelistic Christians praying for four non-Christians, praying five things that the Holy Spirit would do in your encounters with them, we could see radical changes in South Orange County, California. Because if you just took half the people in this church, and I don't want to be a pessimist, but if you took half the people that are hearing my sermon this weekend live in our, on our campus, you took a thousand adults, let's say, and you had those thousand adults who got serious about listing four names, that's 4,000 people. And all 4,000 of those names were being prayed for, not only by the person that wrote them down, but by three other people. So you got four people praying for those four non-Christians. And they are spending time articulating five specific prayer requests, right? That's more than just, you know, a 10-second prayer. They're really devoting themselves to prayer. You're going to watch God start to move mountains. You're going to start to hear a lot of testimonies of people being one to Christ. Because the Bible says, listen, you can move mountains by asking in prayer. God's not in in the business of just doing magic shows for generations. That's not the point. The magic show was so that you can believe that God can change hearts and prepare people and get them ready for the coming kingdom. Three evangelists of Christians praying with you about four non-Christians, five things. It's going to move this from a theory to a practice. The second thing it's going to do, as soon as you out yourself as saying, I'm praying for these four people, it keeps you immediately accountable. Think about that. Anytime you share some prayer requests like that, I want to see these four people saved, immediately there's accountability. I can think of several examples of people saying, would you pray, and and I I remember one specifically, would you pray for this non-Christian in my life? Well, I wrote it down and I started praying. And guess what one of the conversations is almost all the time, I see that person, I ask, how is it going with you sharing the gospel with that person? You know what that does? Lights a fire. And they recognize there's accountability just in sharing my list. 
hey, if everyone on this campus who hears this sermon would share four names with three other Christians, I guarantee you it's going to light a fire. People are going to say, I need to share the gospel. We're going to talk about revival. We're going to talk about people being saved, adding to their number day by day, those who are being saved. That great line we're going to read in chapter two of Acts could start happening right here. It could change our city. It could change our county. It could expand from our Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, if you will, the real city, not just the person. But, I mean, you could see the reverberating effects of people getting saved in a wave because one church got serious about devoting themselves to prayer in prayer teams of evangelistic Christians. I just challenge you to do this. It's very simple. Sharing those requests is going to move these private goals from dreams to reality. It's also going to be built in accountability. Let me give you one more thing it'll do. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. 2 Corinthians 1, 11. If you start praying and you say, would you pray with me? The Bible says there's real help in that. And what happens when God answers is more people get excited and they worship God, they praise God. Multiplied thanksgiving, if you want to put it in two words. Multiplied thanksgiving. Here's how the verse reads. Paul says, you must help us by your prayers so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted, that's the answer to prayer, through the prayers of many. You must help us by your prayers so that many will give thanks. And he assumes that's a good thing. That's a great thing. On behalf of the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. You start praying for those four people and you see two of them saved in the next year. Are you going to rejoice and give thanks? Oh, you will. But you know what? You're going to multiply that thanksgiving if you've shared that with three, at least three prayer partners that are praying with you. I know they'll be rejoicing in heaven, the Bible says. But God is honored by a lot of rejoicing on earth when God answers the prayers of his people. Please share your requests. And your requests in this case, are you seeing non-Christians in your life saved? You'd be praying in a devoted kind of prayer for evangelistic progress be praying with other evangelistic Christians. And the context in verse number 12 was, you remember, they're coming across the Kidron Valley back to the city of Jerusalem. Look at this in verse 12. When they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, and they entered the upper room and then off they go. It's all about them devoting themselves to prayer. Well, it's an interesting little historical fact that they're not too far away. It says here, look at that phrase, a Sabbath day journey. Now, there's nowhere in the, in the Old Testament when it speaks of the Sabbath, which was supposed to be a day of rest, that it tells you how far you can journey on the Sabbath. It doesn't say. The only passage that rabbis used to point to was the passage when the manna came in the wilderness and all people went out on the, on the seventh day and they went out and they searched for manna on the day. Christ said, you don't have to search for manna because there'll be none out there. Collect twice as much on the day before. Well, that passage says, stay where you're at, right? You don't have to go out. Now, that's the immediate context, but sometimes the rabbis looked at that and said, well, God wants his people to stay where they're at. So they started saying, well, let's be very careful about how far we travel, because travel in the old days was a lot more laborious than it is today. I mean, if you really had to walk, think about it. Even if you had to walk three miles, and you had to take everything with you for what you're doing, if you're going to walk to the marketplace, that'd be a pretty big thing. It would take you some work. You would probably sweat. Well, 
We weren't supposed to do that. It's the Sabbath. So the rabbis started to come up with how far that might be. And they took some interesting passages about things that went on at the cities of refuge and the Levite cities. And they saw a designation in Scripture of 2,000 cubics. And 2,000 cubics, if you, depending on how long your forearm is, is about a half a mile, a little over half a mile, almost 0.6 of a mile. And so that became kind of the standard among the rabbis. It's not a biblical restriction, but it was what they said. And that is, you may want to go a mile on the Sabbath, but you shouldn't go a mile. You should only go about a half a mile. That's how far you should go. So again, this was a man-made rule that became, you know, somewhat out of control, as so many of the Sabbath rules did. But it was in the spirit of, you should be resting on this day and not doing whatever you want. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, God put it that way. There's a lot of things you may want to do on the Sabbath, but you do what I want you to do, and you curtail the things you want to do. And you may want to take a journey and go see someone, some friend of yours in another town, but don't, right? Relax, rest. Even rest your animals, rest the field, just rest. Now, the pattern of work and rest is still legitimate. Matter of fact, I preached on that uh, a couple days ago at the men's retreat. I think it's important for us to rest, and you should rest. But the command for us to observe the Sabbath is much like the circumcision law, which was the covenant sign of God's people Israel with their God. And the Bible says that all of those covenant connections through a ceremonial law, they were all fulfilled in Christ. As a matter of fact, everything about the temple, the sacrifices, the altar, the showbread, the candles, the priesthood, the press plate on the priesthood, the Sabbath day, the new moon festivals, all of that were summed up in Christ and they were the shadow of the things that were to come, the substances in Christ, to quote Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. And the point is that everything was pointing toward Christ in the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. So in reality, the command of the ceremony to rest on the Sabbath, well, that's not the command now, but the pattern of work and rest certainly preceded the Mosaic law, and that's a good thing to do. So we observe the principle of work and rest, and it's a great ratio, six to one, go do that. But when it comes to the law of the Sabbath, oh, that, that's not the point. Well, the point here is just telling us how far it is. Not even a half a mile to go from the backside of the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And that's all he's trying to say. But it is funny that it reminds us of the conditioning of the Israelites that when it came to the Sabbath, you don't do what you want to do, you do what you're told to do. Which, by the way, is what's happening in the beginning of verse 12. They return to Jerusalem. Well, we're reminded in verse 11, they're men of Galilee. I mean, if you're supposed to be an evangelist, I got a lot of friends, neighbors, and relatives in Galilee. I want to go back up to Galilee, 70 miles away from the Mount of Olives. That's where I want to be. But no, you go and remain in the city. Both Luke 24 says that. We learned it earlier in our passage. You're supposed to stay in the city and wait. And so they went. They were obedient. Hey, I don't care where you want to go. You may want to go to Jericho. You may want to go to the beach in Caesarea. You may want to go back to Galilee. But I'm telling you what to do. I'm going to curtail your freedom and say, do this instead of that. And that may be what you want to do. I want you to do this thing because it's the right thing. And the right thing now is to stay in Jerusalem. Which, by the way, you've been conditioned in the Old Testament that some things you want to do, you don't do because God said don't do them. And a lot of times you do things that God says you're supposed to do even when you don't feel like doing it. I mean, that's just a pattern of obedience. I know I'm overemphasizing this, but I'm just trying to say, here is the context of them going to Jerusalem and praying was a reminder that you don't always do whatever you feel like doing. You recognize your submission to what Christ tells us to do. And so much of what the Bible says to do, both Old and New Testament, is you ought to be devoted to prayer. You ought to be praying. And in the context of our passage, I'm saying you ought to be praying about lost people, 
even when you don't feel like it. Number three, let's put it this way. Verse number 12, you need to pray when you don't feel like it. You need to pray in context of what we're talking about for evangelistic salvation of the lost, even when you don't feel like it. Even when you think, I don't think this is going well, and I don't think he's going to be saved, and I'm not sure we're making any progress. Keep on praying. I mean, I mentioned it, and you probably know a lot of people as well who've been praying consistently for lost people in their lives, and it didn't take two weeks. It took two years, or it took 22 years. And some, it's taken 50 years. But I'm just asking you, as Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 1, to always pray and never give up. Keep on praying. And that's the problem in our microwave society. We want to pray and we want the answer. And if it doesn't come out immediately, well, then I guess it didn't work. Be devoted. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Fix it to you like, 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 like super glue. And you've got it stuck in your pattern of everyday work that you are praying. You don't feel like praying, pray anyway. You feel like it's the person beyond hope? Pray anyway. Keep praying. Even the number three person, that Samaria parallel, the Saul of Tarsus in your life, keep on praying. Just because you had a bad encounter, you're done? Don't, listen, keep on praying. Pray when you don't feel like it. The Bible calls us to pray. We need that. We need to not give up. It's one of the reasons our prayer groups can help us. You got your prayer partners. I was asked to preach at the singles group last Sunday night, and I preached a 10-point sermon of all things. It only took me 10 hours. <laughs> didn't. It took me 10 minutes. Well, it didn't. It was a little more than 10 minutes. But I started the sermon by saying I have a 12-point outline, and it's only going to take me 10 minutes. I overpromised, but it wasn't much for longer than that. And I went to a book that I, that I was thinking was a great choice because it was a book by a very optimistic apostle in that case who looked at a church that was doing so many great things. He had so much hope and optimism for that group and he laid down these things as he crescendos into the end of the book and it was a great chapter. Well, anytime I go in to drop into a passage, of course, I'm studying the context and I was getting ready to talk to the Alliance group, the singles group last Sunday night. I just wanted to preach the whole passage which of course, I, Pastor Doug didn't give me enough time to preach the whole passage, but I, I saw the first part and I just wanted to, to preach that. It was a great section of scripture. And I came back to it this week after I was done preaching there and I, I said, this is a, a passage so helpful for us as evangelistic Christians. It reminds us that the nighttime is the time that everyone likes to sleep, but you don't sleep. You're of the day. You stay alert and awake and, and sober. And you go about the work, and it talks about us putting on the helmet of salvation and going out there into warfare, the armor of God. And you continue to work this, and you encourage one another, and you spur one another on. Well, there's a lot of times that you are going to want to give up, and your team can help you in this. I was preaching at the uh, men's retreat on Friday night, and I revealed uh, one of my jobs in, in college was a, a night watchman at a desk in a dorm on campus in Chicago. And... Uh, I used to try and get as many hours as I could, and I could only work so many days, but I would double up my shift on, on some of the nights where I would do from like 11 o'clock at night until 7 in the morning. Because in my mind, theoretically, I thought how great it would be to be able to just study all night, right? Because I got all this studying to do, so I can study all night long. Well, that sounds great at 11 o'clock at night, but not at 3 in the morning when you're by yourself, locked in this little place, behind this desk, behind this glass, and it was painful. But I thought to myself, it's funny how by two in the morning, I'm running out of gas, just trying to stay awake with toothpicks on my eyelids, when 
Other nights when I had papers due and I wasn't working, I knew what I did, what everyone did. I lived on the 16th floor of this dorm. We had a lounge in the middle of it, this little lounge with a refrigerator and coffee pot and all that. And everyone would come, if you had a paper to write or some deadline and some books to read, you would come and study together. And it was amazing how the synergy of that group encouraging us, don't give up, don't stop, don't fall asleep. We had that kind of synergistic accountability because our natural tendency was, I want to crawl in bed and go to sleep. Or I want to crawl under the desk, which I was tempted to do many times when I was working all by myself, and go to sleep. We need other evangelistic Christians helping us pray because we're going to want to stop praying. That's why it's good to share that list because they're going to say, how's it going with that person? Please don't give up. You need help. We don't live the Christian life alone in our very independent, autonomous culture. We try to just take whatever we hear in a sermon, whatever we read in the Bible, and just do it ourselves. We need to never give up on praying. We need to always pray, even when we don't feel like it, because we got a team of people that are keeping my prayers rock solid on the goal of seeing people reached for Christ. When I was reading that passage, I couldn't help but think of the other passage where Paul elaborates on the armor of God, because he talks about the armor of God in 1 Thessalonians 5. But when I say armor of God, if you're a Sunday school graduate, you probably think of Ephesians chapter 6, where he goes through that whole long list. And by the way, that whole passage is much more about evangelism than most people give credit for. They just jump into the context and they don't think about Paul's heart. Well, the end of the passage, his heart becomes very clear. It's about sharing the gospel. And he knows this, that God said he's going to build his church. And as that church expands, the evangelistic progress of the church, it's going to bat back the gates of hell. And that's how it starts, right? I need you to continue to put the armor of God on. Why? Because we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We have a cosmic battle going on here. As he said elsewhere to the Corinthians, we have weapons of warfare that are not of the flesh. They're divinely powerful, though, for the destruction of these arguments, these lofty things that are raised up against the knowledge of God. We fight a battle. So put your armor on and get out there and represent Christ. It's a spiritual battle. As Paul said before King Agrippa, right? We are there trying to turn people not only from darkness to light, but he says from the power of Satan to, to God. This is a huge battle. And so he goes through the list. I remember as a kid going to church, learning about the armor of God, and every piece of armor had its peril. And if you know it, it talks about the breastplate, it talks about the shoes and the belt, and it talks about the helmet and the sword and the shield and all that. And that's great. But there's one piece that's not in the list. It's the main emphasis at the end as it ramps into Paul's concern for evangelism. But it always reminds me of a, of a Broadway play, and I'm not much of a Broadway play kind of guy, if you hadn't noticed. I love Compass Bible Church kids musicals. But don't take me to Hamilton or anything else. I'm just not interested in all that. But I must admit, if you don't tell anyone, there was a play I kind of liked because I saw it on the small screen when my daughter was young. I actually watched Annie. And I don't like to admit that I liked it, but there were parts of it I, I kind of thought was just so quaint and so cute, and I liked it. The old Annie, the little redhead, you know, curly-head girl. And there's one scene where they go to the radio station, because they're talking about, they're trying to find Annie's parents, and they keep flashing back and forth from the radio station where they're singing this song to where the kids are all singing, listening on the radio, and they're all, you know, singing, dancing. It was just a cute song. And the song, if you know that play, in that scene in the movie and in the play, it's called You're Never Fully Dressed Without a Smile. Remember that song? 
Now, don't tell anybody I like that song, but that was, I mean, I just, I thought it was so clever and so interesting and it's so well done. And, and so I thought, well, that's interesting. And now I can't help it, but every time I read Ephesians chapter six, I think of that song. Because here's all these things we're told to dress in. And at the very end, it's like, but you're not fully dressed without this. Put on all that stuff. Think about your salvation. Think about readiness to get out the word of God. Think of all these things, faith and shield and all that. And then at the end, it doesn't give it a parallel to the armor of the soldier. But let me read how it ends. After all of that, the last thing it discusses is the sword of the spirit. We've got the word. We're bringing the word. He says this. And praying at all times in the spirit with all prayers and all supplications. You could have said that stronger. And he says, and pray for me. I mean, you want to do all this? I got the armor on and I need prayer and I'm praying. Pray for me that I can boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel and I can declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Sounds exactly like Colossians 4. It's the same idea, but it's preceded with put on the armor of God and then you're never fully dressed without you praying. And not just sometimes, praying at all times in the spirit, the spirit accomplishing what we know we can't accomplish. Boldness, opportunities, clarity, conviction, regeneration. A lot of folks in our church, they love the word, they love theology, they're pro-gospel, they're pro-evangelism. They're ready. They study apologetics. But we're not going anywhere without prayer. It is revolutionary. It's the thing that changes hearts. Asking in prayer. Mark eleven fourteen. That is the goal. I want to commission you to pray. Pray with three people, about four non-Christians, praying five things. Three, four, five. Can you remember that today? What'd you learn in church? If the waiter asks you at lunch, three, four, five. I got three evangelistic Christians praying with me about four non-Christians, five things that the Holy Spirit needs to do. You do that, you put the sermon to good work. This is exactly what our church needs to be devoted to prayer. Let's pray. God, as we think about prayer in our prayer life, we want to pray for our prayers. We want to pray that we would pray, even when we don't feel like it, even when we're struggling with faith to believe that you're going to work in someone's life. And just like everyone shied away from Saul of Tarsus thinking he could never be saved, God, I pray that we would have the kind of faith that is bolstered by not just praying in our closet by ourselves, but sharing our prayer requests just like Jesus did saying, hey, you, Peter, James, and John, pray with me. Come and pray with me. God, I know our time may preclude praying every day with three other people about non-Christians, but God, we can share. Thanks for technology. We can shoot a, a text, an email. We can connect with other people and say, please be praying for these four people. And then God, may that built-in accountability start happening. And then God, oh, we can't wait to hear that some of the people from the thousands of people that have been written down because of this church and the royal task, getting serious about evangelism, God, we can't wait to hear of thanksgiving that is multiplied because some of those people are coming to faith in Christ. God, give us those stories of conversion that we know is just the beginning of a path of sanctification in, in the Christian life, calling more people to us that we might be in this community, salt and light and a beacon of the gospel. And God, let us get so crowded here, we gotta continue to accelerate church planting. We wanna see more people reach, start a movement here in our church. 
as people get serious about sharing the gospel. Thanks for this team, God, or for the folks in this room that have been faithful just to respond to the counsel of their pastor regarding non-Christians, regarding what to pray for, about who to pray with, and about identifying those that need salvation. God, honor them for that kind of responsiveness to the preaching this morning. And let us hear good things because of it in Jesus' name.